0: How are y'all doing? Yeah, hanging out? Got some coffee? Nice. Uh, My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's so good to be home, it's so good to be back with y'all, and it's so good that you're here with us, hanging out and worshiping alongside of us. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, uh, chapter seven. Uh, We're gonna start off in verse 11. We're gonna work our way to chapter 8, verse 4. It's kind of a short chunk of scripture. Uh, Up until now, we've been taking large chunks. Uh, I know it sounds long, but it's not. While you do that, I'll go ahead and ramble just a little bit. Uh, Number one, if you are new uh, or you've been joining us for the past couple of weeks, please fill out a Connect card, drop it in the offering basket. We'd love to connect or you could come join us this afternoon for lunch at Roosevelt's at 1 o'clock there. uh, We want to hang out with you. We want to answer any questions, tell you a little bit more about who we are, what we do, and why the beards. Apart from that, if you do not have a Bible, there should be Bibles in the rows before you. That is our gift to you. Please take one. uh, And if you already have one, but you know someone who would be blessed and benefit from one, please hook them up. Uh, at this point, you should be in Song of Songs. Uh, what I'd like to start off by doing is kind of giving a giant, very quick, very brief overview of this book, especially if you have just joined us over the past couple of weeks. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we started a series called Asking for a Friend. It's been a study in the Song of Solomon. Uh, it's been a very beneficial study. It's been a very great study for questions and discussions and conviction and all those wonderful things. And the Song of Songs is a book of collected poems. And so when we read through the Song of Songs, as many of you have, uh, you'll notice that it's not written in chronological order. And so all of these poems are kind of put together. And so what we have done or what we have seen and examined over the past couple of weeks has been uh, chunks of this man and this woman and their pursuit of one another in the context of marriage. We have seen chunks of their relationship. We have seen them before, uh, before they were married as friends. We've seen them as uh, they got married. We've seen some of the more intimate moments that they have shared, both in praise through word and in terms of uh, intimacy. Uh, We walked through their first fight. I'm sure you guys liked that. Uh, And now we're walking into kind of a different season in in their life, in their marriage. And that's where we find ourselves today. And so what I'd like to do is pray for our time in God's Word and then, uh, and then we'll dive into the remainder of our time of worship. So join me in prayer. God, as we come together to examine your Word, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in us. I pray that you would be among us here this morning. We know you are. Uh, we're just begging for greater intentionality. God, I pray that those who know Jesus would come to know him better. I pray that those who don't know Jesus would come to know him today. And God, that is a wide, that is a very broad request because everybody is working and walking through different seasons. And in light of those seasons that we find ourselves in, it really just becomes a testimony to our need for you. So would you meet our need by meeting us where we're at as you reveal yourself to us in the pages of your word. God, we thank you for this time. God, I pray that I would be set aside. And God, that it would be you at work. Um, we ask all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as I mentioned, I'm really happy to be home. It's been two weeks since I've preached from this pulpit. Uh, two weeks doesn't sound like a long time, but it kind of feels like a long time, especially when you kind of do it every Sunday. I'm sorry, Emma. And uh, and so when, it, <laughs> so, when it comes to that, two Sundays ago, I was privileged to, to preach at Logos Community Church in Harlingen. That was fun. That was very cool. And then last week, you got to hear Pastor Chris Elliott from Logos Community Church, and he did a phenomenal job. In addition to that, two weeks ago while I was gone, Nathaniel also preached, and he did a phenomenal job. So thankful for those men. Now, that being said, this past week, my wife and I got to have some time off, but before diving into that time off, we, we traveled uh, to Fort Worth. See, our church is part of this church planning network called Acts 29, and we were asked to go to Fort Worth to help observe in our, and participate in the assessment of church planters and their wives. These are men and women and teams who are about to plant churches within the next year. And so we got to participate, observe, and encourage and hear from uh, uh, just a variety of church planters, people from Kansas City and New Mexico and North Texas and all around, wonderful, awesome, cool. In addition to that, since we were already in North Texas, uh, we went from Fort Worth up to Denton. Denton's about 30 minutes north of Fort Worth and we just spent some time together and we hung out and we laughed and we had date nights and all the wonderful things, right? And as I tell you this, it tends to be like a really good story, right? Like, man, so good, got some time off, got to have some date nights, got to enjoy one another. I'm a, I'm a car talker, my wife's a car sleeper. And, and so when it comes to that, I'm like, I just wanna talk about feelings and she's asleep. And, uh, and so, it's always a really good opportunity for us to just kind of uh, work through, walk through, process uh, a bunch of things. Now, I say that because this trip, in light of us getting some time off and us getting some rest, it's not necessarily the result of godly discipline. A couple of months ago, we were back up in Fort Worth, and this time, we were being assessed. And while we were being assessed, so they'll ask questions, and they'll probe into our lives and all this stuff, and a couple of weeks after your assessment, you get kind of a review, and they'll say, hey, here are some recommendations, here are some things we heard you say, we'd like you to work on this X, Y, and Z. And then they come up to this uh, section in the assessment that are called conditions. Conditions are, hey, if you'd like to continue to be a part of this network, or if you would like to become an official member of this network, these are things we need to see you work on. And one of the areas that I was uh, exhorted in was in the area of taking time off. Uh, Because uh, I don't like necessarily taking time off. I mean, it sounds really good on paper and on the whiteboard, but I think it's stupid. And, uh, And so I don't like taking time off. I don't like taking time off, and as a result of not taking time off, I don't do it regularly. Uh, But this is one of the things that they pressed in on me concerning not just uh, me personally and my emotional health and my spiritual health, but also the health of my family. And they used words and phrases like, you have little sustained relief or rest. In addition to that, we would like to see healthy sabbatical practices and uh, i would love to say that oh they just put that on paper like hey work on these things and you're good to go what i hate is that they follow up they'll follow up and uh, they'll follow up and they'll be asking just like this past weekend even though we were participating in the assessment of other uh, planters we got pulled aside and hey how are these practices going what kind of rhythms have you started what does it look like for you guys to take rest and so we get regularly followed up on but the truth is, part of the reason, if not the entirety of my reason for not taking time off and not having healthy sabbatical practices and, and how it has affected my life and the life of my family is because there is a lack of trust in the gospel. There is a lack in, of trust in Christ. That I'm, I, I am sufficient on my own and I need to prove to him that. And, and it comes out in the life of my family and obviously in this assessment Now, I say all of that, kind of give you this broad picture, because in many ways, the Song of Songs this morning is going to teach us the importance of rest. And there's going to be a ton of other things that we look at, but that's going to be what we start off with. It's going to teach us about the importance of rest, in addition to the importance of getting away together and serving one another. particularly in the context of marriage, that's the thing that kind of makes it happen. It is us not just giving ourselves to one another, but also serving one another selflessly. And so what I'd like to do is read through the verses, and then I'll dive into uh, why rest is important. So if you' got your Bible, or if you just got here, uh, remember it's Song of Songs chapter seven. We're going to start in verse 11. And it's the woman who starts off, uh, and so she speaks first most of the time, she speaks last, and she speaks most often. I think this is so cool, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. Here we go. Verse 11. She says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the great blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits. New as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Chapter 8. Oh that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one and, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love, Until it pleases. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you kind of the backdrop of what's going on uh, in a moment. Here are the two things that we're talking about. We're talking about the Sabbath and the importance of it. And then we're going to talk about this word called passion. Uh, Before we get into passion or when we get into passion, I'll go into further detail concerning these verses. Here's what you need to know first off. Here's the backdrop. In this backdrop, what she is saying is that she wants to get away with him. She wants to take a mini vacation. He's been... Working hard, doing all sorts of kingly things. He's been shepherding. He's been doing all the things. They're kind of missing one another. It's one of those seasons where they uh, haven't really spent that much time together. You know what I'm saying? Like you find yourself in that season, you're kind of missing one another. It's a really heavy season. And so what she ends up saying is, "I want us to get away together. I want us to get away together. I want us to go to the countryside where there's no Wi-Fi. We don't have access to cell phones. Uh, what, what else? Like, you know, no access to cell phones, no social." media. I just want us to be away together for the purpose of being together, for the purpose of enjoying one another, for the purpose of being intimate with one another, and for the purpose of trying new things together. We'll talk more about that in a second, right? In the end, she wants to be with her man, she wants to be with her man in the context of us go, or them going into the country and just being with the, by themselves, enjoying one another, having time to one another. But she is also so uh, enamored by him that she can't resist him. When you look at chapter eight, because it's kind of weird, I'm not going to lie. When you look at chapter eight, verse one, she says, oh, that you were like a brother to me. That's kind of weird, right? Now, we need to understand culturally what she's talking about, Okay. In that time, culturally speaking, right, it was not a good thing to to demonstrate PDA, right, public displays of affection, right? And so it would be looked down upon, you would be cast out if you did that kind of a thing. Like, you really wouldn't do that. Even now, some of you are awkward about it. But never mind. Outside of that, right, at that time, culturally speaking, PDA was like, looked down upon. However, when it came to children, little children, like brothers and sisters, they would hold one another's hand, they'd kiss one another on the cheek, it would be done in public, and everybody would say, oh, that's so cute, right? So what she is saying in this context is, man, I want to kiss you, and I don't care that we're in public. I don't care that people see. Uh, I want to kiss you, but I can't, because it's looked down upon, all right? So culturally speaking, she just wants to be with her man. But in addition to that, as they go out into the countryside, going back to chapter 7, and then di- uh, dipping back into chapter 8, chapter 7, she says, let us go out to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love, The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and besides our door are all choice fruits, new as well as old. When you read through the Song of Solomon, uh, oftentimes we encounter these sections that are uh, metaphorical, right? That it's maybe speaking to something other than what we think. Some are pretty literal, and then some are some sexual references, right? And here, she's being very literal about sexual references. She's like, man, I want us to go and be alone, and I want us to try new things. That's basically what he's saying. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable, check it. The church has ignored, neglected, and not often teach taught uh, through the Song of Songs. The problem with that is whether you know Jesus or not, you're being discipled by something. You're either gonna be discipled by his word or you're gonna be discipled by the culture. And so when we ignore things like this, right? 2 Timothy says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for rebuke and teaching and reproof, right? And so this is God's word. So man, we're gonna go to pure water where we're gonna learn about what God has to say about intimacy and marriage and men and women. We're gonna look to God's word rather than the culture, if you find yourself kind of getting awkward like yeah but it's kind of weird look man statistics are pretty rough especially when it comes i don't necessarily know the statistics for women but the average age for a boy to see porn is eight years old okay and so if you're nervous about having that conversation with your kids statistically they may have already seen some stuff okay so food for thought anyway so she wants to try some stuff and she wants to try some stuff with her husband. They want to enjoy one another. And here's the other thing. She is specific about it. Toward the end of chapter 8, or that section, she goes on to say, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. They want to get alone. They want some privacy. They want to enjoy one another. And because she's the one that speaks first, speaks last, and speaks the most often, she tells him specifically what she wants. Now, I love that, right? I love that because I am wired with clarity. Like, Sometimes I'll ask my wife a yes or no question, and she will respond with, sure. I hate that, because that's not yes or no. Like, I don't know if you really want me to move forward with whatever decision we're trying to make. The same thing comes to our relationship, when it com- even when it comes to like, just physical touch, not intimacy, it gets you all weird, but just like holding my, or my wife's hands. Like, do I? Don't I? Why? Does she like it? That's weird. My hand's warm. And so like, I won't do a bunch of things until she's like, super specific, and it's not just a guy thing, because it's in the Bible, right? She's Like, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to hold me this way. And so I read that. I'm like, yes, clarity. I don't even think intimacy. I just think about clarity, right? And so some of you dudes, you love that. And you think you're all that because you're kind of confident, but you're really not, right? What you need is clarity, right? Ladies, here's some encouragement, right? She speaks first, she speaks last, she speaks the most often. It's okay to make the first move. It's okay to be specific. Hey, don't hold my hand that way. Hey, do you like it when I have my hair this way? My wife tells me that all the time right? Like, be specific about certain things. That's cool. Anyway, all of that being said, that's the backdrop of our time. She wants to get away with him. She wants them to have a little vacation. She wants them to enjoy one another. Uh, she doesn't care who sees, but she also wants these private moments. And in these private moments, she wants to go deeper in their relationship intimately. But there is also this sense of, intimacy as it pertains to transparency and um, vulnerability. The fact that she's able to say, hey, I want to not only do some of the things we used to do, I also want to do some new things, right? The fact that she's able to say that, the fact that she is specific tells us that there is a great deal of communication and a great deal of vulnerability that has been cultivated in the relationship where there is safety for them to put stuff like that on the table. That's a good thing like, you might feel awkward, fine, whatevs. Doesn't make it a bad thing. In their marriage, they have cultivated a space, not just for vulnerability, and not just for transparency, but a space of safety to where they are able to put all of this stuff on the table. Talk about it. Go back and forth on it. Make a decision, whatever you want. That's a healthy marriage. That's a healthy relationship. And those spaces, particularly spaces of vulnerability and transparency, aren't just the results of lots of sex. It's the result of passion. It's the result of godliness. That's something that we're gonna talk about in just a minute. So that's the backdrop, right? As I mentioned earlier, we're gonna talk about two things. We're gonna talk about this thing called the Sabbath, and then we're gonna talk about this thing called passion. We're going to spend the majority of our time when it comes to passion, but as it pertains to the Sabbath, or actually just before we dive into that, this whole sermon, I hope, is very practical. It's going to be very practical, but it's going to be rooted in God's word. So we're going to start with the Sabbath, and I'll connect, I'll connect it in terms of like, well, how does this, what does this have to do with the backdrop of them getting away together? first thing I want to talk about is honoring the Sabbath. See, regardless of your position or regardless of what you believe about the Sabbath, there is a big picture to it. The big picture of the Sabbath is that it's part of creation and that it's a picture of the gospel. Right? When you read through Genesis, God is creating all things, right? And then at the end, it says that it's good and it said that God rested on the seventh day. Like that's something that was very intentional. It's a picture of creation. But then what we also see in the pages of God's word is that we see Jesus say things like, those of you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. You will find rest in me, right? It is a picture of the gospel. The Sabbath, and if you don't know, here's what I would say. The Sabbath is made for rejuvenation in God. The Sabbath is made for rejuvenation in God. You see, the Sabbath is not a day so that you can do whatever. The Sabbath is a day for worship. Now, as I say that, some of you might think very formally about that. So you're saying, as I have a day off, I gotta read my Bible, sing songs, uh, and spiritual hymns, I gotta do all these things. Maybe, I would say that certainly is a part of it. But there are other things that are a part of the Sabbath, like a good nap. Another thing that's part of the Sabbath is turning off your phone, not answering that one email that just needs to be answered. Another part of the Sabbath is maybe having dinner with friends and just joking around with one another and enjoying life together. Another thing that pertains to the Sabbath is maybe taking two naps. Let's go wild, right? Taking two naps. It is a time where we certainly reflect on the goodness and kindness of God in Christ. It is a time where we reflect on what God has done for us, and at the end of the day, it's a time where we stop. It's a time where we stop. You can read the statistics on how, fill, or how full of stress and anxiety Americans are because they refuse, or I should say we refuse, to take time off. And so the Sabbath, what it's going to do, the Sabbath is actually going to expose the condition of our hearts because it's going to teach us or tell us what we believe about the gospel and what we believe about ourselves. So for instance, if you're that individual who's just work, 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 gotta always work, gotta work, work, work all the time, right? And when we have this conversation about rest and grace and Sabbath practices, it's like, yeah, that's not me right now. Well, it might tell us a lot about your idols. This could pertain to work. This could pertain to your family. This could pertain to your children. It's going to teach us a lot about what you're about. Additionally, like me, the Sabbath is going to teach you whether or not there is this real, genuine, authentic trust in what God has done for you in Christ. Part of the reason I hate taking time off is because I feel like if I take time off, then I'm not working as hard as I can for the Lord, right? And so that's, that's a root of pride and arrogance because I'm, I'm putting things on myself to do things on my own, my own way, because God just doesn't know and God will understand. The Sabbath actually exposes the condition of our hearts, All right? Listen to, to Ray Ortland. He says that um, the Sabbath is not meant to, quote, be fit into our schedule. See, one of the things I think we do when we start talking and thinking about the Sabbath, it's like, right, 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 yes, that makes sense. I gotta make some changes, gotta look at my schedule. And so all of a sudden, what tends to happen is we have this um, shallow understanding of the Sabbath, and when we actually go to apply it, we're trying to fit it in to everything else rather than centering our week around it, rather than actually prioritizing it. And so he goes on to say that the danger with fitting it in our schedules is that, quote, we risk living soul exhausting lives and wondering why God isn't more real to us, why we're exhausted and why we're so grumpy, right? A large part of that, if you're wondering, it's like, man, why isn't God Uh, that real to me or that much bigger to me. A large part of it would, my question to you would be, what does your rest look like? What does your rest look like? It's going to put stuff on the table. Now that's kind of that biblical foundation for the Sabbath. What does rest look like for you? The second thing that we're going to look at are rhythms of rest. Now, Before I go into that, I only have two things on that, but before I go into that, I'm not gonna be specific about rhythms because what works for me may not necessarily work for you. right? But I'm gonna give you this 30,000 foot view of rhythms of rest, right? And so here's the first one. First one is, I would encourage you to prioritize the Sabbath weekly to prioritize this time off weekly. Here's what prioritization is gonna do. When you begin to prioritize, I hope, you're gonna be looking at your week with the gospel at the center of it. Not because of all the ABC A B C things that you have to do. You're looking at the gospel at the, with the center of your week. In addition to that, when you begin to prioritize, it's gonna help build rhythms because those rhythms are gonna be founded in order. For instance, you're gonna look at what you value. So when you take some time off, there's no cell phones or there's no emails, or you turn off your notifications, or you sign out out of all social media, or you leave your phone. Another example of that is going to be, okay, when I take time off, I am going to schedule a nap because I want a nap, right? Like you're gonna do these things out of the significance and importance for them, right? It's gonna help you create order. And finally, when you prioritize the Sabbath, it's gonna force you to be disciplined in keeping it. Remember, if we're looking at it with the gospel at the center of our week, then that means we need to grow in discipline and we need to grow in intentionality. That's really all it is. When you prioritize your week or when you prioritize your, uh, your tasks, all you're doing is being intentional with what's more, most important. And then you work your way down the list. That's what we're doing with the Sabbath. Sabbath. The Sabbath was created so that we would find rejuvenation in God through worship, where it would be this day, this moment where we stop, that it would be this beautiful picture of what the future eternity is going to look like. The Sabbath is rooted in the gospel. And if it is rooted in the gospel, and if we belong to Jesus, then that applies to what God has done for us in Christ. And when we don't take it seriously, when we don't observe it, it says something about what we believe about God, and it says something about what we believe about ourselves. Right? So prioritize it. Number two, and this is going to tie back into our, our section. So the first one was to prioritize it weekly. The second one would be, in light of what we're reading, get away regularly get away regularly. Now, I want to address singles first, because I think when we walk through Song of Songs, those of you who are single or even in relationships, right, those are for marriages. No, getting away regularly also applies to singles. And so my question to you is, well, what does that look like for you? What are some healthy rhythms to where you're able to get away and worship, worship, create discipline, looking ahead? What does that look like for you? Previous to full-time ministry, I used to work for the city of McAllen as a department head, and so I get sick leave and vacation time and all that stuff. Like, I get it. You got to apply for it. You got to save up. I get that. So what's it going to look like for you? Sometimes uh, when I worked for the city, I would try to take trips out of town and just kind of be away and reassess and spend time alone with God and write and journal and really do everything that I do here at home just in a completely different setting, because sometimes that's really all you need. You just need to change the scenery, right? That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing, right? In addition to that, if you're like, man, I can't afford going to San Antonio, or I can't afford going to Corpus, not like you should, but like uh, all of these things, if you're like, I can't afford to do that, sometimes one of the things I would do is there used to be this coffee shop, I can't remember it, there used to be this coffee shop uh, in Weslico, apart from the Starbucks off of uh, the freeway, and I would go to that coffee shop in Westlaco because nobody knew me, and it was great, and I could just like, be in the corner and write and drink all the coffee I wanted and be alone and no one would know who I am, right? Like sometimes you just need to change the scenery and it might just be a different city here in the valley. So if you're single or if you're in a relationship, whatever that looks like, what does it look like for you to get away, for you to find rejuvenation in God, for you to worship, for you to grow deeper in your relationship with the Lord? Those of you who are married, it's the same question. It's the same question. What does it look like for you to get away? Say, check it. Regular time away helps to sustain passion. I'm going to talk a lot more about that in a bit but regular time away helps to sustain passion. Studies prove that couples who actually travel more together grow deeper, not just in intimacy, but they grow deeper in their friendships. They grow deeper in how they relate to one another because they're learning all sorts of stuff with one another. They grow deeper and more intentional with how they're around with one another. So those of you who are married, when was the last time you took some time off? When was the last time you got away? And you could present a bunch of different things. You could present things like, oh man, uh, you know, we got kids. Totally get it. There are seasons for that. There are seasons where obviously your children are always going to be a priority, but this is also where the community of faith and your family come into play. When Rebecca and I first got married, right, uh, my parents or my mother-in-law would watch Seth because he was five, six, or seven. Right? As he's gotten older, he gets a little bit more independent. Those things change, and we adjust accordingly. When it comes to children, here's one of the things I want to say. Oftentimes, married couples don't want to get away because it's all about the kids. It's all about the kids, and that's great. Your children are a gift, and they are a blessing. Here's what I want to say concerning that. When it's all about the kids, the friendship between the husband and the wife goes underdeveloped. And as it goes underdeveloped, there's a separation that is caused over time. At some point, these kiddos are going to move out. They're going to grow up and move out. And what's going to happen when it comes to husband and wife? You're going to wake up one day and realize you don't know anything about one another. That things haven't been cultivated. That a friendship hasn't been cultivated that sex became a task and sleeping with one another came a convenience or, or living under one, one uh, uh, roof became a convenience. Regular time away helps to sustain passion. Okay? It helps to sustain passion. Additionally, when it comes to your children, right? when it comes to your children, it actually teaches them about the importance of the relationship. When mom and dad want to go away to the island for the weekend or they want to get away for the day, whatever that looks like, it actually teaches kids about the significance of the relationship. That, man, you're important and we love you, but mom and dad want to grow in their friendship they want to grow in their relationship. They want to get away to recharge. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for you? One of the things I said, oh, here, real quick, I just want to make this one quick comment because uh, my wife and I have done this, right? Uh, Many of you are in ministry. Many of you are married and in ministry. Let me just put this on the table, okay? Just because you're working together doesn't mean you're spending time together, okay? Like, I've had that with couples who are in ministry. Like, no, yeah, we're really great because we're working together. No one cares. You're not actually getting rest get away that doesn't count if you go on a missions trip together okay like actually get some rest right now one of the things i said was that regular time away helps to sustain passion i mentioned that we were going to talk about the sabbath and we're going to talk about passion so now let's talk about passion here's what you need to know passion is rooted in godliness and it moves us to action passion is rooted in godliness, and it moves us to action. See, the definition of passion isn't necessarily just strong emotions, especially when we look at the origin of the word. Oftentimes, when we throw around the word passion, we're trying to talk a lot about strong emotions towards something or someone. But when it comes to passion, it involves a strong and intense desire that moves us to action. If you have ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, the reason for that title is because there was a strong desire in Christ that is reconciling man to God. There's this strong desire and it moved him to action. What was the action? That he died on the cross for sinners. Passion involves a strong desire, an intense desire that moves us to action. Action to the point where it hurts, right? Passion is rooted in godliness, and it moves us to action. When it comes to godliness, here's what you need to know. Godliness is the ongoing result of sanctification. It is being made more into the image of Jesus. It is being made more into the image of Jesus. So, if passion is rooted in godliness, and it helps us move into action, what are the outcomes? Here are your practical stuff for those of you who are note takers. Here are four outcomes of passion. Done well, done in godliness, here are four outcomes. Ready? Okay, no one is. All right, right. thanks, Emma. (laughs) She's getting ready. Okay, here we go. The first one is patience. The first one is patience. No one likes me. Okay. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. This is the third or fourth time she has said this. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is like the third or fourth time that she's uh, um, um, spitting some words of wisdom to her single friends. One of the outcomes of passion is Patience. But check it, it is not just waiting for, waiting for the right time and waiting for the right person. It is living a life of holiness. That puts an entirely different spin on it. Because sometimes I think, particularly as Christians, when it comes to waiting, it's like yeah, I'm just sitting around for the right time and the right person, and we completely miss living a life of holiness. This applies to those of you who are single. This applies to those of you who are married. But I'm going to talk to the singles because we talk a lot about marriage. But nevertheless, right, chew the meat, spit the bones. Those of you who are single, are you living a life of holiness? Or are you taking advantage or are you making excuses because you're not married yet and you're looking at what's ahead or what could be? but as a result, you don't live a life of holiness. See, when it comes to patience, again, I think we could only look at, oh, we just gotta wait. And we completely forget about holiness, and we completely forget about sanctification. And the reason we forget about them is just because God isn't really that loud. because God really isn't that lovely. And so what ends up happening? What ends up happening is that our hearts grow hardened, we desire selfish gain, we think arrogantly, or we're frozen in our insecurity, and often what comes out of that is habitual sin. Habitual sin. This could be everything from, man, I'm going to get my own, to where you're sleeping with one another and you're playing house. This could be the other one where arrogantly, like, no, we're not doing any of those things. Therefore, we are better. And really, you're just living in arrogance. And so apart from living a life of godliness and holiness and one where you are being sanctified into the image of Christ, the Scriptures actually challenge you and ask the question, do you really even know God? The scriptures aren't even asking you for the reason. Oh, why are you in this and why that? The scriptures are putting it all on the table. God through his word says, do you even know me? We would say, yes, Lord. Then be holy for I am holy. The scriptures don't teach and they don't say, right? Live a life of holiness so that you can get who you want the scripture says, live a life of holiness because I am holy. Period. That's it. That's it. And so I would challenge you, this is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. This is what Paul says for this is the will of God. And I love this. I love this because the most, the biggest question always that, that I've walked through that maybe you might even have, what is God's purpose for my life? Right? Like that's the question. Like God, just show me your blueprints and I'll do it. No, you won't. You'll try and change it. Okay? Right? Here it is. Here it is. You ready? Okay. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would be made into the image of Jesus that you would grow in godliness, that your life would be one of holiness because God is holy. And you, by God, have been set apart. He continues, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you, each one of you, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgresses and wrong no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you for god has not called us for impurity but in holiness right he's not saying like god hasn't called you so that you get what you want god has called you so that you would be made holy because he is holy therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Here's what he's saying. Here's what he's putting on the table. As you indulge in your sin, you're not disregarding man. You're disregarding the Lord, particularly God the Holy Spirit who abides in you. Before anything is done, that is where it affected. That is where the main effect is. Right? Psalm 51.4, David says, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. one of the outcomes of passion is patience. And what is patience but a life lived in holiness because God is holy. Number two, passion. One of the the second outcome of passion is pleasure, right? Going back to Song of Songs, verses 11 through 13. What does she say? Right, she says, "Come, my beloved. Let's go to the fields. Let's get on the country. Let us go to the vineyards. Let's do this in the morning. Whether the vines have budded, whether the great blossoms have opened, the pomegranates are in, are in bloom. There, I will give you my love. <clears throat> Beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old." Right. When you read through the Song of Songs, right? There's no mention of kids. It's it's literally a book about a man and a woman pursuing one another in the context of biblical marriage, enjoying one another. Yes, one of the facets of of like marriage is pleasure in sex. Like I'm just gonna say it, okay? Put it on the table. Like that happens, and if you don't think it's pleasurable, it might be weird. I don't know. Maybe we need to talk afterward. But at the same time, that's what you say. That that's like the entire book to enjoy one another in pleasure, unashamed. Genesis 2 says that the man shall leave his uh, mother and father and cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. They shall be naked and unashamed. They shall be naked and unashamed. There is absolute vulnerability, uh, vulnerability here, but there is also this place of pleasure. Now, that alone is something, as awkward as it can sound, sometimes it's really sensitive. It's really sensitive because many have such a broken sexuality. Man, we might hear pleasure, we might hear these beautiful things that happen in marriage, and all we are reminded of, or all it feels like we're being reminded of, is our guilt, and our shame, and our insecurity. And I get that. And if it's not guilt, And if it's not shame, and if it's not insecurity, some of you are arrogant because you haven't done those things because you're better than those who are in sin. No, you're just as equal. Vulnerability for pleasure to take place, for there to be no shame, vulnerability must be cultivated for the sake of healing and assurance. And that's hard. And that takes time because of guilt and shame and insecurities. Like I'll be honest, part of the reason I love clarity from my wife is because of insecurities that I wrestle with. And so when she provides me with clarity, I'm able to move forward in confidence within that space of vulnerability. And that space was hard. That, that space was hard for me. Right? Because, especially the way I grew up, the guys I used to hang out with, all that stuff, when sex was talked about, it was talked about like it was a sport. It was talked about like, oh man, this is awesome. You have it all the time, every day, all of these things. And here I am, we get in our marriage, and I'm freaking out. Because I'm not wired that way. Didn't even like the way they would address it. And so we needed to cultivate this space of vulnerability and transparency and safety because my thing was rooted in my clarity. How I operate was really just rooted in insecurity. Some of you might have something similar, but it is rooted in guilt. It is rooted in shame. And if you want pleasure to be, created, if you want that lack of shame to be there, then that space of vulnerability must be cultivated with a great deal of care and a great deal of patience, inviting one another slowly into that space so that there would be healing, so that there would be assurance, and so that pleasure would actually flourish. Number three, protection. Passion produces protection right? There's, there's a great difference between intimacy and lust. See, when you grow in intimacy, it actually helps to fight against lust and sinful desire. Yeah, like that's 1 uh, Corinthians 7, right? Part of the reason or one of the, oh, I don't know what you want to call it, one of the benefits of marriage and one of the benefits of sex in marriage is that it would actually protect your marriage that it would be a reminder of covenant faithfulness that it would be a reminder of your commitment to one another that it would actually as you grow in intimacy help to fight against sinful desire because here's the thing intimacy and lust are both heart issues they're both heart issues remember passion is rooted in godliness intimacy and lust are both heart issues Is there one that is louder than Jesus? Is there one that is louder than Jesus? Sex helps grow pleasure, or sex helps with pleasure, sex helps with protecting the marriage. And so here would just be something that just got laid on me. Here's what I would say. If you're married and you weaponize sex it's not God who you trust. No matter how you sprinkle gospel-centered language on that crap, it's not God who you trust. If there are things that need to be discussed, counseled, and work on, then let's do that, right? But if you weaponize sex, it's not God who you trust. That's number one. Number two, you're in sin, and so repent. Repent of your sin and trust in the Lord. Let's do some hard work and some digging, but repent of that. Number four, it's a lot of peas. Passion promotes more passion. Kind of simple, All right? When done correctly, passion will produce more of it. Why? Because you will have created a space of vulnerability through conversations. Earlier, I told you about my wife and I creating that space of vulnerability where I could just put on the table all of my insecurities. How I put on the table those insecurities was through talking, right? Like our friendship deepened and was enhanced and was made stronger because of conversations so that we could create that space of vulnerability and transparency and space, or excuse me, and safety. And so it creates vulnerability through conversations. It creates vulnerability because your relationship is deepening. It creates vulnerability because now you get to serve one another both inside and outside of the bedroom. So, in short, passion here are four outcomes of passion patience, pleasure, protection, and more passion. How does any of this relate to Jesus? Here's where we close. In Ezekiel 16. We get this picture, we get this picture of the people of God and his covenant we see this metaphor of this king who sees this woman who is naked and doesn't have resources and is just cast off to the side and so this king restores her and and adorns her with jewelry and brings her uh, kind of like brings her up to life and marries her and all that and she is unfaithful to him repetitively continually she is faithfully unfaithful to this king and it is this picture of god in his pursuit of his people Uh, as we look at the old testament we see god in pursuit of israel and we see israel being faithfully unfaithful to this god who continually pursues them and at the end of ezekiel 16 he reminds israel he reminds this woman that he is going to restore her because of his covenant made to her he is going to restore her because of his faithfulness to her not the other way around and that is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does for sinners, that we can bring the gospel down to one sentence, and that is that Jesus came to save sinners by dying on a cross in our place for our shame so that we would be made new. So that we would be made new. Man, and so, if, so if you know Jesus, let this be a beautiful reminder that when sometimes it sounds kind of corny or, or even stereotypical of churches, when it's like, yeah, Jesus died for you. Yes, exactly. Jesus died for you in your place so that you would be made new. 2 Corinthians 5 says, let the, the old has passed away. Behold, the new is here. You are a new creation. Church, whatever it is, lunch plans, cell phones, all that, stop and stay there for a minute that if you belong to Jesus, he has saved you and reconciled you and forgiven you and you belong to him. You have been made new. And if you do not know Jesus and he would invite you to himself, that you would repent of your sin and come to know Jesus, that your heart would be made new. There's not these other like fancy things that your heart would be made new. You see, in Christ, there is restoration. That was his mission, to reconcile God and man and that you are now a new creation. See, in Christ, there is redemption. That is, that we have been through his blood, we have been bought out of our bondage to slavery and we are now free and have the power of the Holy Spirit to fight and say no to sin. In Christ. There is rest, that you don't have to earn his love because it has already been accomplished through Jesus. That the Father looks at you and is pleased because of the obedience of his Son. Church, make no mistake. Godliness breeds passion. The question is not, are we a passionate people? The question is, are we a godly people first? Let's pray Lord, we begin by just thanking you for an opportunity to worship you through your preached word God I, I just want to walk through a couple of things like like when we begin to think about rest and Sabbath those aren't necessarily uh, things that we often think about, and I think the statistics prove that. And so, Lord, would you convict us of our, of our pride and our arrogance? Even if we have insecurities, even if we think we're doing it with the best of intentions, oftentimes there is a root of pride and arrogance as to why we will not stop and worship. God, may may a time of rest not only be a reminder of your grace, but a time of rest be a time where we rejuvenate and remember what you have done for us in Christ. God, when we begin to think about passion, may we first consider godliness. That if we belong to you, man, our decisions our decisions, our sinful decisions particularly, aren't necessarily disregarding man. We are disregarding you. And as a result, if we belong to you, then we are grieving the Holy Spirit. So God, would you, through your word, expose our hearts so that we would repent of our sin so that we would turn away from our sin and place our trust in Jesus and know that that's actually work. We need to do something. It's not just a changing of mind. Things need to change. God, those who are single, God, I pray uh, that they would live lives of holiness. That their pursuit of godliness would be rooted in the righteousness of Christ. That they would pursue purity, not just because they're hoping or because they're waiting, that they would pursue purity because you have called them to live a life of holiness. Because you are holy. God, I pray the same thing for those who are married. That they would live a life of holiness. Holiness that is rooted in the righteousness of Christ. God, and if stuff needs to get surfaced and dealt with, that it would. That the marriage would thrive because it is rooted in the finished work in Jesus. Holy Spirit, do a work in us so that we would be more like Jesus and less like ourselves. Do a work in us so that we would die to ourselves and live for your glory and not our own. God, heal those wounds that many of us carry because of poor decisions or different scenarios. Heal those wounds. Or remind us, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remind us that that guilt and that shame was nailed to the cross, and the only thing we hear now is that it is finished because of what Jesus has done for us. God, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, let this be, let this continue to be a time of worship where we give you our stuff, where where we are not held back or tied to things that we think are a must, but that we would actually relinquish our idols and trust of you. God, I pray that we are good stewards of these finances, That these finances would aim at not only advancing the gospel in our city, but caring for those in our congregation. God, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity to worship you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.